community. It is great to be with you on a rainy Sunday. Uh, I am just so excited for us to be looking once more at this series, Profiles in Courage. Uh, if you've been with us last two weeks, we looked first at Caleb and Joshua. We had this huge question, what would you do if you could not fail? And we heard the Lord speak, be strong and courageous. Uh, this, last week we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can feel free to say that three times fast if you want to challenge this morning. And uh, John did a great job just inviting us into this realization that even when we find ourselves in the fire, that God walks with us. However, this morning, we're going to talk about Esther. Esther, who, on the one hand, maybe is an obvious choice as we're walking through the Old Testament, a profile in courage, and yet I hope as we look closely at Esther, we might be surprised to see Esther is not actually a very uh, obvious candidate when it comes to the courage that she initially started with. Yet, I think, actually, Esther is the perfect kind of book for a moment like this moment as we find ourselves living in the city. In fact, if you think about Esther, a few interesting facts to Esther is that Esther depicts, reflects on a religious minority living in a pluralistic city, society, that was actually quite chaotic and dangerous and sometimes even threatening to that community. Uh, The story of Esther is also the story of a woman in a very patriarchal society, becoming, in her courage, a catalyst for social justice and change. Isn't that kind of interesting? Yet, Esther finally, perhaps most interestingly, is the only book in the entire Bible that does not mention God. Did you know that? Uh, The question, the obvious question to ask is why, why would the Bible include a book that does not mention God. Well, as we look at Esther, what we're going to see is that it's very probable that at the time of Esther, the people of God, the Jewish people, were scattered across this Persian empire, and they had to be asking themselves, where is God? Where is God working? Why does it feel like God has abandoned us? Why does it feel so hard to see where it is that God is working in our midst right now in this totally vulnerable, chaotic, and overwhelming moment we find ourselves in? And so this morning, as we talk about profiles and courage, I'm excited to ask with you, where is God in a culture that feels like God is either hidden or missing or absent. So if you have a Bible with you, or if you have your phone, I actually want to encourage you this morning. I know we don't do this every week, but go ahead and open up to the book of Esther. We're going to walk through a huge swath of the book. You can feel free to follow along with me. We're going to have a lot of the verses up here on screen, so no pressure if you don't have a Bible with you, but if you do, feel free to open up to Esther 1, where we're going to begin with the story you've perhaps heard before, maybe you're familiar with, maybe it's been a while. Esther 1 uh, depicts a very interesting scene in which King Xerxes, in the third year of his reign, chooses to give a banquet. Now, King Xerxes was a powerful man. In fact, King Xerxes really is up there with some of the most powerful, militaristic, imperial figures that have ever lived in human history. This man had a massive army. The Persians at the time were the most powerful nation, and what Xerxes said happened across the whole land. So, like a typical imperialistic, militaristic dictator, Xerxes is interested in showing off 
the power and the wealth that he has. And so he decides to throw this party for all of his top officials. Uh, in Esther 1, 10 to 11, we discover that Xerxes decides on the seventh day, when he's in high spirits from wine, to command his seven eunuchs to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles. And the Bible notes, for she was lovely to look at. Right? So here, here's the scene. Xerxes, drunk, decides to do something that will actually come back to haunt him. I think any wise man would know in a non-drunken state that this is not a good idea. But Xerxes is so obsessed with his own power, he decides his queen should be paraded much like his wealth and possessions were being paraded in front of his top officials. So he orders Vashti to come before the people and incredibly, boldly, Vashti refuses which immediately, if you read through the rest of uh, chapter 1 in the book of Esther, creates a political crisis for Xerxes. Xerxes has now been defied by his queen, the top wife that he has, who should be bearing him royal children, and yet he's in this difficult political position because if he moves too strongly, then this could really mess up his reign. And so as he consults his officials, they come up with an ingenious idea. This is now going to be Esther 2.2. As Xerxes gets rid of Vashti, as he banishes her from his court, he doesn't kill her, but he, he deposes her of her crown, and he declares that now he is going to open up a pageant, if you will, to bring in the most beautiful young virgins to come before the king so that he can now select a new queen to be his. If you're not getting the point yet, I would begin, as we're looking at the book of Esther, with a pretty simple observation. Xerxes, and the Persian culture that Xerxes was in, was obsessed with appearances. Xerxes is obsessed with appearances. He's obsessed with the appearances of his wealth, being put on status through this parade. He's obsessed with the beauty of his former queen, who boldly refuses. Yet he's now obsessed with finding a suitable beautiful replacement. In fact, we discover in Esther 2 that they're going to set up this pageant in which all of these young virgins are going to be gathered from around the land. They're going to go through 12 months of beauty treatments, and then one of them is going to be selected for Xerxes' pleasure to be his new queen. Now, when we look back at the obsession of Xerxes with appearances. I mean, we, you have to be hearing this and cringing inside. I think particularly in this day and age, you go, wow, that is just absolutely extraordinarily insane that Xerxes would just be that preoccupied with wealth, possessions, and appearances. I mean, it's gross, isn't it? And yet, you do have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself, I can't help but be struck by the question, are we that different today in our current cultural moment from being a culture that is obsessed with appearances. One pastor put it this way, in Xerxes' day, uh, the men were determined by the size of their wallet and the worth of a woman was determined by the size of her dress, which of course immediately sounds kind of crude, doesn't it? Why would anyone ever determine a person's worth by the size of their wallet or the size of their dress? And yet, again, if, if I'm making you uncomfortable, maybe just a little bit, uh, I want to push us to ask, are we that different today when it comes to beauty pageants that put appearances forward, that focuses on the externals 
more than the internals, that does not seek to judge a person by the content of their character, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would say, but instead seeks to judge a person by the lifestyle they're living, by the wealth that they may have, by the impressiveness of their job, their status, their influence. In fact, this is my final push. If I just push this a tiny bit closer to home, if you have found yourself turning down a date because that person was not attractive enough, you find yourself in the beauty pageantry of the world. If you've stayed at a job that you hate, but kept it for either the status, the money, or the influence that it has, you find yourself in the beauty pageantry of the world. Or let me hit you with the last one. If you ever, like me, have found yourself envy scrolling on Instagram, <laughs> pausing relentlessly, pondering even, and this is the worst one I'm confessing before you, when you go to click on that person's profile, not to see what their life holds, but to check that count of how many followers they have. Now, here's, here's the hard truth. I think we find ourselves in a culture that is obsessed with appearances, just like Xerxes' day. And if I were to really push it home, I think we, as a church, as, Christian, as a Christian community, we find ourselves, particularly in the city, just as much in it, in the beauty pageantry of it all, as anyone else. We are not distant or removed. We have not accomplished some sort of high and lofty moral superiority. No, Christians are in it. We are struggling with the same external focus that the Persians were, that Americans struggle with today. But here's the encouragement. The story of Esther looks at someone who gets thrust into the beauty pageant, who doesn't actually resist it or stand above it or offer some pure moralistic charge away from the temptations of the world. No, Esther finds herself in the beauty pageant. And the question is, where is God working when we find ourselves in the midst of the world? Where is God working when we find ourselves swept into the pageantry of it all? So let's look at Esther and see how she does. This is now Esther 2.7. We discover a man named Mordecai, a Jewish man, has a younger cousin whose parents died. And because she had neither father or mother, Mordecai sort of adopts her, brings her in. And the Bible notes, Esther has a lovely figure and was beautiful. So when this beauty pageant begins, Esther gets taken in to this pageant, which is, to be quite honest with you, a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> Esther's in it. Her, her beauty, her appearances are enough that she gets brought in, and Esther begins moving through these beauty treatments. As Esther's moving through these beauty treatments, uh, we're going to go to the next passage, Esther 2.10. We discover that not only is Esther going through the beauty pageantry of it all, but Esther chooses to not reveal her Jewish identity and family background because Mordecai had suggested to do so would put her in danger. So not only is Esther now part of the beauty pageant, but Esther refuses to reveal that which is a primary or core conviction to her. She has not revealed anything about her Jewishness or her Jewish identity. And then finally, as if this isn't sort of disappointing or concerning enough about how Esther's responding to all of this, we discover as the pageant moves on in Esther 2 that Esther keeps getting uh, more, becomes more and more prominent, keeps being pushed further and further to the front because she does 
exactly what the attendants to Xerxes say. So as Esther's moving through the treatment, she's very responsive to any direction that's given. She's found to be more and more lovely and appeasing. At some key moment, 10 months in, Esther is then brought before Xerxes, and Xerxes says, this is the one. He takes Esther into his harem, and then he makes Esther his queen. Now, I don't know about you, my wife was just recently commenting to me. She said, uh, I always grew up, because there's only so many women that are the heroes of the Old Testament, uh, I, I always was told, look to Esther, Esther's so great, be like Esther. And yet, Jenna was saying, you know, at some point as a, as a teenage girl, I said, what? <laughs> I want to be like Esther? Like, that doesn't sound like a very good trajectory. Um, I don't know that I want to get swept in and be involved in this kind of political movement, become a puppet vessel. In fact, if you read the commentators on Esther up to this point of her story, it's interesting that the progressive feminist scholarship, especially on Esther, point out just how, how despicable this is. Esther has not stood up. She has not used her voice. She's hidden everything about herself. There's nothing here that reveals the moral courage that even Vashti had in refusing the king. And yet, if you go to the other end of the spectrum and read Jewish scholars, conservative Christian scholars, they too are saying, wow, Esther has really failed here. Esther's a bit of a disappointment. She hasn't held on to her religious convictions. She hasn't led with her beliefs. She hasn't refused. In fact, she has found herself sleeping with and now married to a pagan man, which was against every one of the commandments that the Jewish people had. In every religious sense, Esther is a failure at this point of the story. And I don't know about you, but to me, there's just a slight amount of comfort in that. And I think the point of Esther is meant to be this invitation does God use broken and disappointing people for his purposes? And the answer here is absolutely yes. In fact, if you are waiting in the Bible to find profiles of courage, being those people who just walk this pure, blameless path up and to the right, spiritual growth and trajectory, you're going to be waiting a long time to find the characters that God uses throughout the story of Israel and the church. But if you begin looking for those who are compromised, those who have found themselves involved in the beauty pageants of the world, those who maybe even have made mistakes or themselves have been compromised in their involvement with the culture they find themselves in, well, now you are going to discover people that God chooses to use and work with anyways. And so as you open up Esther, you begin to see that God's invitation here is not because Esther is perfect, but instead the invitation for Esther is because God wants to use anyone exactly where they are at. So Esther finds herself now involved, fully compromised in the systems of the world, but this crisis is going to take place in her story. It's a crisis of faith, it's a bit of a crisis of compromise. It's a huge testing point. And as you walk through Esther, the logistics of the story are that Mordecai, her older cousin, has found himself in this sort of political standoff duel with a man named Haman. Now, if Xerxes is obsessed with appearances, Haman, his top chief official, is also obsessed with appearances. And so Haman becomes really enraged that Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. And Mordecai refusing to bow down, Haman goes through these 
machinations of the court where he discovers who Mordecai's people are. Then he uh, brews this plot where he's going to get Xerxes to make an announcement that's going to kill all of the Jewish people. And uh, in Esther 3.6, we discover that having learned Mordecai's people, he scorns the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looks for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom. So in Esther 4, Mordecai is going to discover this, and as he does, he goes out into the streets, he rips his clothes, and he wails in lament and ashes. At this point, there is a real threat that Xerxes is powerful enough, and Haman is powerful enough as well, that the entire Jewish people might just be killed who find themselves in the Persian court. So this moment presents for Esther a crisis of faith. This is a crisis of courage. Esther is now being confronted with the fact that she, through compromise, has found herself in a position of possible influence that is going to involve immense risk and will take immense bravery. And yet this is what Mordecai says to her in Esther 4.11. He says, all, oh, sorry, this is Esther responding to Mordecai's invitation. All the king's officials and people of the royal province know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Here's Esther's challenge. She finds herself with her very life at risk. Here now is what Mordecai says in response. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Here's the two great disruptions that Esther is offering us when it comes to a profile in courage. The first is that God has been working through all of the seemingly small and mundane moments that have made up Esther's life to this point. God has been working. God has actually been at work through something as insignificant and bizarre as Xerxes getting drunk. For without Xerxes being drunk, Vashti would never have been deposed. If Vashti hadn't been deposed, then there would have been no opportunity for a new queen to come into uh, Xerxes' royal court. It, because Esther was beautiful, Esther was selected for a pageant that she otherwise never should have participated in. Because Esther acquiesced and listened to the royal attendants, she is drawn in to become this queen, this, to become this royal position of influence and power. And because, because Esther now finds herself here, there is a chance that God has actually been working this entire time to set Esther up for such a time as this. Can you imagine as you look back at your own story where it was that God has perhaps been moving in the hidden and unexpected moments of your life? Is it possible that for so many of us, when it comes to a profile in courage, that what we assume is that to see God, we're going to need to see God in the big and the bold and the miraculous? In fact, anyone in uh, Esther's day would have known that God sends the ten plagues to Egypt. And if you're like me, I tend to hope for a ten plagues kind of moment in my life. I mean, I would much rather prefer for God to send the hailstones, for God to flood the streets, for God to 
carve open the big broad swaths where all of my life and my decisions and my job and my family could just be laid out on a path for me. But instead, Esther teaches us that it is far more likely, apologies, it is far more likely that God, I'll shut this down, that God, that God has actually been working in the small moments of your story. That God has actually been working in these unexpected ways. That God has perhaps brought you here and now to this very place and time so that he can do something through you that you never could have imagined before. As we break this down practically for you, here's three ways that Esther's story offers us a profile in courage when you find yourself facing this crisis of faith, this crisis of courage. First, Esther reveals to us that you are who you are for a purpose. You are who you are for a purpose. So much of our life, so much of our current culture's obsession with appearances draws us to want to be someone else, doesn't it? Wouldn't you rather be more successful? Wouldn't you rather be more attractive? Wouldn't you rather have more gifts than you currently have? And yet here's the relentless invitation of the scriptures to our cultural moment. You are who you are because God has given you what you have. God has equipped you for the very purposes that God has for you. So when it comes to your gifting, when it comes to your personality, when it comes to the job that you have right now, the role you find yourself in, you are who you are for a purpose because God has given it to you. I love one of my favorite parables that Jesus teaches is the parable of the talents in which he talks about how a king is preparing to leave his land and as he's preparing to leave, he entrusts his stewards with resources one person gets 10 talents, which would have been a large sum, millions of dollars today. Another gets five talents, an equally large sum. And then a final one gets one talent, which of course is still quite a bit of resources and yet feels less compared to the other two. And as the king leaves, the three are told to get to work and to take care of what God has given them. And the first invests the 10 talents and earns another 10. And when the king comes back, the king says, well done, you have invested and used well that which I've given you. The one with five invests, does well, and gets another five, and the king comes back and says, well done. You have used and invested what I've given you. But the one with one buries it in the ground. They're too worried about what's going to happen with this one talent. They're maybe too distracted with the other five, the other ten, what the other people are doing with the talents around them, and the king comes back and says, you foolish servant. I gave that for you to use, and instead you hid it away. Now I'm going to give it back to somebody else. Here's the invitation for you. You have exactly what you need for the purposes God has for you. You sit with that for just a moment. You have exactly what you need for the purposes that God has for you right now. If you were to embrace that, I wonder, I wonder how you might lean in differently to the opportunities in front of you. I wonder how you might lean in differently to the work that you're doing, to the opportunities to be involved here in a church community, for your opportunities to love the city. You have exactly what you need for the purposes that God has for you. That's not the only invitation that Esther offers us. If who you are is for a purpose, then also you are where you are for a purpose 
a purpose. We find that Esther finds herself positioned in a somewhat precarious, terrifying place exactly because that is where God wanted her to be for the moment she found herself in. I actually was struck as I was working through a couple different commentators on this that one person really insightfully pointed out the Jewish people at this point are scattered. They're totally disrupted. And again, there's this sense that God seems totally hidden. Like we knew what God was doing before, but we have no idea what God is doing now. And as you look at the different stories that emerge from this period in Israel's faith, you find that the Bible talks about Ezra and Nehemiah, who through their own uniquely positioned places of influence are able to take a remnant of Israel back to Jerusalem, and they have this incredible faith journey experience. Uh, they're also in Babylon is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they are also in a precarious, vulnerable spot, and yet they too are positioned there precisely for the influence that they were supposed to have. And yet I think if, if a Jewish person was being honest, the worst spot to be would have been the Persian Empire. No one wants to live in Persia at this point. It is difficult, it is deadly, it is terrifying. And yet the story of Esther is here to tell us even in the place you'd least want to be, God has put you there for precisely his purposes. I, going back, look back the last couple of years, I've had a number of friends who inevitably have the conversation, I'm sure you two are having the conversation, how long do I stay in the city, right? How long do I stay here? It's hard to live in the city. It's hard to live in Lincoln Park. It's hard to live anywhere in one of these neighborhoods surrounding us. We know it's expensive. We know at times it can be lonely. We know the challenges are very real. And yet I wonder in this invitation, you are where you are for a purpose. Doesn't mean that there might not be a time when God calls you away from the city, but my my leaning in with you is, what is God inviting you to precisely where you are? The job that you have right now, the influence you have right now, the relationships you have right now, the church you are a part of right now. What is it that God is inviting you to here for his purposes? Finally, if you are who you are for his purpose, you are where you are for a purpose, you are when you are for a purpose. I love in the passage, Esther 4.14, that Mordecai says, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is the question right now, isn't it? What is the such a time as this that you are here for? Um, there's this great scene, this great line, if you've ever read the books from The Lord of the Rings, where Frodo is carrying this ring of power. I mean, for those who are obsessed with appearances, the ring is everything. It seems to hold infinite possibilities and wonders and might, and yet Frodo has found that in carrying this great responsibility, it is heavy. It is a burden. His life is in danger. And so Frodo at one point laments to Gandalf, saying, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. To which Gandalf replies, So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. I think that's the exact invitation Esther is offering us. What is it that you have to do with this time that has been given to you? Um, as we conclude the story of Esther, 
Esther is going to respond by saying, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther, just to be clear, is transformed from a woman of compromise, a woman who found herself against her own will, swept into the pageantry of the world, to now being a woman of courage who steps into the invitation God has for her in such a time as this. So if I were to summarize that invitation for you, this is, in fact, a you-plus invitation. This is the invitation we've been walking through, talking about as a church, not only our church, but all of the churches around us. What would it look like if God has a purpose for you? And what if you are who you are for a purpose? What if you are where you are for a purpose, and you are when you are for a purpose, for such a time as this? Um, there's a story that we actually skipped over every week for those of you who are with us we often have this moment that we call the be the church moment it's where we gather throughout community stories of what the church is what the church can be uh, stories of how the church has met and seen transformation through the love of jesus across chicagoland and it just so happens this week that one of our very own previous attenders katie mateau who just recently moved was able to film her story for be the church and what i love about Katie that you're just about to see is that she embodies precisely this kind of invitation. She found herself here in Chicago for only this very short season, and she was wrestling deeply with all of the pressures of the world around her, and yet God got a hold of her. God gave her an invitation, and she responded. So I want to invite you now to go ahead and watch the story before we end with the time of communion. My name is Katie and I've been attending community for nine months. Addiction comes in so many different ways. For me, it was food. It was eating for comfort, for, for anything. Happy, sad, no matter what was going on, I would just, you know, take my food and hide in my room and eat and then feel worse or guilty about it after. I would get into these binge restrict cycles where, you know, I'd crazy overeat on the weekend, but then, you know, calculate my calories and then figure out what, you know, okay, I can only eat 400 tomorrow. And finally just broke down because it was Sunday night and I just didn't want to have to restrict the next day. And I just couldn't do it. I just cried on the floor and I'm like, I need help. I, I need to talk to somebody. I need to find people like me. Christ followers that I knew growing up just had this something to them, this peace, this inner glow. And um, just, when I finally broke down, I'm like, I want that. How do I get that? Um, so we looked at churches near us um, on Google. Uh, community was the first one we saw. We're like, oh, it's at Lincoln Hall. That's really cool. Um, let's just check it out. And um, everyone was just so friendly and warm and inviting. Small group at community has been amazing. Alpha, I did an alpha uh, study, and that was incredible. Such, such wonderful people. 
and I go to the re recovery meeting as well via Zoom on, on Tuesdays. Um, and it's just all just played this amazing part in transforming me and bringing me back to God and peace with myself and my situation and life. Turn the page and just like, all right, I'm a believer now. I, I have to rely on a power grid of myself. That's the, that's the only way I can live my life and be sane. But having faith, I just, I don't know. I wake up every day and I'm happy. And uh, I have peace with whatever's going on. I know, I know God's got my back. I know Jesus is here with me, guiding me through life. And I've never felt that way before or really relied on it. And now I do every day. Um, for, I know so many of you know Katie, uh, the way she can just bring, embody the transformation of Jesus. Um, it's truly powerful. And yet, here's my encouragement, here's my challenge to you as a church. Can we continue to be the kind of community that sees more and more stories like Katie's here in this church? If that's going to take place, we need you to embrace your you plus invitation. We need you to be with us here for such a time as this, for whatever work God is doing in you, and we need you to join us in the work that God is doing here through our church. So thank you, church, for being the church to Katie, and may this not be the last story that we have to share of how lives come and encounter the transformation of Jesus right here in Lincoln Hall. Let's move now to a time of communion. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for Katie's story. Thank you for Esther's story, Lord. Thank you for courage that leans in and sees you moving even when your work is hidden. Thank you, Lord, for the invitation even now to come forward and be equipped and sustained for the work that you have for us. Lord, I pray now as we Go to conclude with this time of worship. May your spirit be speaking. May it be pressing in. May it be calling forth the courage needed to respond to this invitation. We lift this prayer up in Jesus' name.